If you're a guest, we are thankful that you're here. If you would be open your Bibles to James, we'll be looking at James, the first chapter in just a few moments. And uh, we look forward to this study through the epistles on Sunday evenings and then also on Wednesday evenings. And we'll say more about that in just a moment. We do want to continue to remember the Baker family and prayers and in every way that we can comfort them and the loss of a dear and lovely uh, member and sister of our congregation. And uh, we love this family dearly and we want to support them in every way that we can. We're also mindful this week of great news of of Damien and Millie and Devin's baptism. And we are thankful for those three souls and for the commitment that they have made to serve God. We're thankful for the families and others that have been in the lives of, of these three souls that have encouraged them. I'm thankful for Mitch Poscovich and his study with Damien and with Millie and uh, the great encouragement that he has been to them. I want to remind all of you again, uh, not this coming Wednesday, but the following Wednesday evening will be a beginnings class for all that have been recently baptized. And if you uh, have been recently baptized, and it may be has even been 18 months or two years ago, and you want a foundational study, we want you to be a part of this study. If you're married and your spouse uh, would like to come, we would love uh, for you to do this as a family. What a great encouragement that that could be. We've had a lot to be thankful for this week, and we need to be mindful of that in, in our appreciation as we pray to God, and we need to give Him all the glory. Uh, this morning, we probably had the largest single contribution that has ever been a part of this congregation uh, for just a, a regular contribution. And then tonight, the house is full and the singing is beautiful, and God's blessed us richly. And it's not any of our doings, it's God's blessings and us simply being a conduit to say, Lord, here we are, use us. And it's exciting to think about the good that can be done in the name of the Lord this year with so many hundreds of people that's willing to join together and no one's concerned about who gets the glory and everybody's ready to be used uh, for his service. And we look forward uh, to seeing what God has planned for us this year. Probably they're still scattered throughout the pews, these uh, bookmarks, if you're on the end of a pew and there are some beside you, you may want to pass those down. There may be some that did not get those this morning. And then uh, we'll go ahead and ask because I know some of you are, are proofreaders. And how many of you found the missing books? We see a few hands. Okay, next week you'll come in and there will be bookmarks again. And we want to encourage you to throw the ones away that you're taking now. This will get you on schedule now. And we'll have bookmarks with all of the epistles on them next week. And we look forward, so forward to this study together. You know, so many things when you grow up, you don't know if it's just in that area of the country and like growing up in the country itself. I, I, I don't always know was that a country expression or not. But I heard my whole life growing up, the males run. Now, when you just say that, that sounds kind of funny, doesn't it? The mail never runs, but I heard that all of the time. The mail's run. And when, and when that was said, keep in mind, this is before the days of any kind of social media, and it was even the days when long distance was very expensive. And so usually you had local phone calls you could make. We weren't allowed to make long distance phone calls. So the U.S. postal system was your next connection to the world. And so when we were in the house, I know you young ones can't believe this, but when we were in the house and the words were said, the mail is run, there was a race to the mailbox. And that included even the adults. Everybody wanted to go to the mail. I remember out in the country, you would see the mail truck going down the road 
And then you could drive down the road the other way and you'd see all of your neighbors, everybody followed the mailman. As they went to the mailbox, the mailman went to the mailbox, they went to the mailbox. It is exciting to get mail, especially if it's from an individual. It's not junk mail. Because in that it, means that, it meant that someone has thought about you. Someone has taken the time to communicate with you. And so there's that immediate connection. Someone cares and someone wants to tell me something. I hope that you realize that all of the letters that we're going to read this year were written by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. God knew that these would not just be written to individuals or to churches in the first century, but it would be written to individuals and congregations in 2013. Listen, I'm not trying to be cute. You've got mail. God loves you. And God wants to communicate to you. And God wants you to run to that mailbox and he wants you to open it and he wants you to understand what he has written to you. And today we start with this beautiful study in James. And I'd like to go over just a few things about the background of James. And, and there's a real good chance that, that Tim may go in some of this in a lot greater depth on Wednesday night. But I want to just touch with you a few things about who wrote this and who was he writing to and what are some characteristics of this book. And then I'd like for us then after that to just look primarily at three verses this evening. They're tucked there just after the beginning of the first in the first chapter of James. First we see that we have a letter here from James and James as far as we know and most scholars agree that this was probably the James that was the half brother of Jesus. What does that tell us about him? The writer of this would have grown up in a very religious home. We know that his parents Mary and Joseph were very devoted to the Lord. They were holy and righteous people before James was ever born. As young adults, they were devoted to the Lord. Their home would have been what we would have said was a very religious and holy home. Also, we would realize that he would have been one that would have been taken regularly to synagogues, to the place of worship before Jesus would have died upon the cross and that new covenant would have come in effect and the church would have been established. And so when we consider this, it's interesting to think the half-brother of Jesus. Have you ever thought about what it would be like to grow up being the half-brother of Jesus? Think about having a sibling that never did anything wrong. Think about having a sibling that when something goes wrong around the house, can't blame Jesus. He's never done anything wrong. I mean, it's amazing. And then on the other hand, can you think about some of the blessings can you imagine having a sibling that always encourages you? Can you imagine having a sibling that, that you can say, I can look to them and they're my role model. He's my big brother. Jesus would have been the big brother to James. I look up to him and I, and I appreciate him. But yet even in that, it's interesting that they perhaps maybe appreciated him, but they didn't believe that he was the Messiah when he first began his ministry. If you want to glance quickly at three passages that are, just gives us interesting insight. When we back up to Matthew, the 13th chapter in 55 and 56, we get a glimpse into this family. And this was when Jesus went into Nazareth and it's Matthew, the 13th chapter. 55, they said, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brother James? And that would be our author of James. Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and his sisters. Are they not all with us? 
Where then did this man get all of these things? And so there we have a listing of, of four siblings of Jesus that would have been Jesus' half-brothers uh, and then the mention of the sisters. But yet when we flip over a little deeper in the Bible and we go to John the seventh chapter, listen to this simple verse, one verse in verse five, John seven and five, and even his brothers did not believe in him. They grew up seeing his perfection, but yet still, when he began to proclaim himself as the Messiah, they didn't believe that he was the Messiah. But that changed by the time Jesus died and was resurrected. And you remember the, the disciples were told to wait in Jerusalem. And so that's Acts the first chapter they're waiting. And Acts the second chapter, we're going to see the Holy Spirit miraculously poured upon them, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to see the beginning of the church. Well, you remember that verse in Acts 1, while the disciples are waiting, who do you think is a part of that group that's waiting? Acts 1 and verse 14. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. James had become a believer by the time the church began. As a matter of fact, if we were to flip over to Acts, the 15th chapter, we see that not only is James a believer, but James had already become a pillar in the New Testament church in Jerusalem. And so the writer here had quite a journey growing up in the same house with Jesus. But yet when Jesus proclaiming himself to be the Messiah saying, I'm not buying that. But then later seeing the death, the burial and the resurrection saying, all right, he is not only my older brother, he is my savior. And then being such a vital part of the church there in Jerusalem. It's just interesting to think about the author of this book. But then for just a moment, let's also think about not just James the man, but let's think about James the epistle. What is it that we could learn briefly that would help us as we study this letter for the next couple of weeks together? Number one, there's something interesting about the book of James, and that is its practicality. In other words, if we were sitting in a Bible class setting and I said, what other passages of Scripture remind you of the book of James? Immediately, many of you would say Proverbs. And then very quickly, someone would say, it reminds me of the Sermon on the Mount. Huh. Isn't that interesting? Have you ever heard two brothers preach? And when you heard them, obviously at different times, you thought to yourself, wow, when they preach, you can tell they're brothers. I think about that when I think about how similar the Sermon on the Mount and the book of James is. Both are very practical. I wonder if that's the way Joseph raised them. I wonder if that's the way Mary talked with them. I wonder if that's the way maybe the rabbi that would have been a part of the synagogue that they would have grown up being a part of and learning so much of the scriptures there. I wonder who it was in their life that influenced them to be such practical teachers so that when you hear one, you immediately think of the other also. Now listen, as you study this over the next few weeks, I beg you to get this point. Just because it's practical, don't dismiss it as simple. We're going to be reading a, a book, an epistle that's challenging. It's going to meet us where we live in day-to-day -day living. And it is going to be challenging if we truly read it to say, 
What is it that I can do to grow closer to God in the midst of this? That's why we're reading this mail this year. We're not reading it just so we can say, look how many check marks I have on a bookmark. We're reading it to say, God has a message to me. How is this going to transform my life? What is it that God has for us to learn as we study this together? Well, James is, is just a master of illustrations. You can't go very many verses before you say, look, there it is again. He's using another day-to-day -day illustration and pause at those and understand, of course, easily what the illustration is, but then spend more time saying, what is it spiritually that he wants me to get out of this? And because of that, this is interesting, there are 63, in this short writing, there are 63 unique Greek words that aren't used anywhere else in the New Testament. And the reason is because so many of those unique words are tied into James's unique illustrations. And so it's, it's an interesting read because it is so well illustrated. And it's also a challenging read because the illustrations meet us where we live in day-to-day -day living. Also, it's interesting that he doesn't spend a lot of time in church doctrine here, but what he does spend a lot of time in the book of James is he spends a lot of time challenging our personal devotion and our day-to-day -day life as a disciple and a child of God. But then before we read the verses, let's, let's look at one more thing about the background and let's look at who is this addressed to. If you want to read with me, I, I don't have this on a slide, but, but read James, the first chapter, verse one. Let's read this together. And, and notice he identifies himself as James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then here's who he, he's writing to. To the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. Now, you know that, that when you read scholars, they're not all going to agree upon the date that a particular book is written for the most part. But there are a lot of scholars that believe that James was probably the first uh, of the epistles that was written. That's why it's listed first in our reading. And, and as we think about that, it's interesting that he described the ones that he was writing to as the 12 tribes, as if to go back and link that with what we usually think about Old Testament language. Now, if you know the Bible very well, and if you don't, I think you can keep up with this, but, but think how neat this is. When you go through the book of Acts, you remember that the church, Acts the second chapter, they were conversions of primarily Jews all the way up to Acts 10. And so all of these conversions are taking place of converting Jews. But then Acts 10, we have Cornelius and the Gentiles. But do you remember what happened in Acts 8? Acts 8, the persecution became so great that they what? They scattered. Wait a minute. That's the word James used when he said the 12 tribes, which are scattered. And so imagine primarily all of the Christians at one time were Jewish converts to Christianity and they lived in Jerusalem and persecution came in and they scattered to other places and James says, I want to write a letter to all the ones that have scattered. I want to write a letter that, that they will just scatter the letter around to all the ones. Perhaps that's why he refers to them as the 12 tribes. And it is interesting to note that the language 
shows that he knew he was writing primarily to an audience that understood very well Judaism. For example, in the second chapter, when he mentions the word assembly in the original Greek, the word is synagogue. And notice in just five chapters how many times he uses illustrations out of the Old Testament. And when he mentions characters out of the Old Testament, he doesn't describe who they are. He just expects you to know them. As a matter of fact, when he mentions Abraham, and this is a big one, he calls him Father Abraham. And then when he refers to the Lord on one particular time, he refers to him as the Lord of the Sabbath. You see, it was obvious that James was written at such an early, I say it's obvious, I'll just say it's obvious to me. Now I know there's different opinions, but I believe that by the style of writing and the choice of words and illustrations, he was writing to the church when she was so young, when she was so much in her infancy, that primarily all of the converts had been converted out of Judaism. Now, if you want a deeper study, and some of you will appreciate this as, as you read through, because as I studied through it recently, well, on Wednesday night, we're studying James in a men's class right now. And this really caused me to study the book, like scrutinize it in various ways. It's also what is missing. Because at this time, the church had not been influenced with idolatry and paganism. We don't see the sins that are usually accustomed to idolatry and paganism like the sexual immorality and the drunkenness. You don't see those things heavily mentioned within the book of James because the Jewish converts were living holy and righteous lives morally as they were converted to Christianity. Just something interesting to think about as you look through the book. So we've looked a little bit at the man, we've looked a little bit at the book, and we've looked a little bit at who he might be writing to. But we've already talked about that this was inspired by the Holy Spirit and it's preserved for us in the canon. And so it's really written to us today. And what is it that the Lord wants us to know? In the last few minutes that we have, let's just drop down and let's read 9, 10, and 11 and let's see something that, that really is uh, it, it's beautiful. And, and it's uh, one reason why I like this section of a few verses here. Usually when, when someone knows James, the first chapter pretty well, if there's three verses that are typically overlooked, these would be three verses. You probably know the verses before this pretty well. You probably know the verses right after this very well. And yet it might be that many of us would say, you know, I've really never studied those verses that much. They're not that deep. It's just interesting how usually we just scan right over 9, 10, and 11 because the verses before and after are so familiar to us. And so let's look at 9, 10, and 11 of the first chapter. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation because, and here's an illustration, as a flower of the field, he'll pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man will also fade away in his pursuits. Now let's work through a little bit of this. Who's he talking about in nine? He's probably talking about an individual that is poor, an individual that we would oftentimes say, well, they are of humble means. And isn't it interesting that he says that they can glory in their exaltation? Well, who's going to exalt 
the poor man. Well, if he is a righteous poor man, we know who's going to exalt him. You remember when the rich man and Lazarus died? And remember the rich man was ungodly and he wasn't exalted after his death. But you remember when Lazarus died, even though he was a beggar and poor upon this earth, he was exalted all the way to Abraham's bosom, a great place of comfort waiting upon the Lord. That's quite an exaltation. Turn a page in your Bible to James the fourth chapter. We sing this very often and this is where this comes from. Look in verse 10, James 4 and 10. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and talking about God, he will lift you up. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and God will exalt you. And so in James 1 and 9, he is referring to someone in poverty. Financially, they are in poverty. And yet he says, the Lord is just as quick to exalt that individual as any other individual. Now maybe this could go without saying, but allow me to say it for just a moment. Do you realize that if you have a person over here that has great wealth, and you financially, and you have a person over here that is of low, low uh, measure of any kind of wealth, and you say, which one would be best uh, to serve the Lord? Do you realize the Lord is not going to look down and say, oh, the wealthy man, he, he or she can do so much more. God is just as quick to exalt the poor as he is the wealthy. Now, please do not misunderstand me tonight. I wouldn't be teaching truth if I taught you that wealth was sinful. That's not a fact. Some of the wealthiest people on the earth at times have been some of the most righteous children of God. Job was the wealthiest man of his day, and he also was the most righteous of his day. David and Solomon, they had their times where they probably were some of the most righteous men alive on the face of this earth, and they also some of the wealthiest men alive on the face of the earth. But please understand this. It wasn't their righteousness that made them, I'm sorry, it wasn't their wealth that made them the righteous individuals that they were. Does that make sense? And so here you say, here is a poor person. Now listen, now we're talking about strictly spiritually here. There is not anyone here that understands the scriptures well that feels sorry for a poor person spiritually. There's no reason to. God exalts the poor person just as quickly as he exalts the rich person. And so the point is we need to recognize that when we say, I want to be a spiritual, holy, and righteous person, it doesn't have to do with our wealth as whether or not that is possible. Now, it would have to do with our stewardship. How do we use our wealth? But it's not a measure of, I tell you what, if you, if you can just make 5,000 more a year, you're a candidate to be a child of God. You know what? You, you can be as strong and as faithful as anyone else if you can just get in a nicer neighborhood. Listen, a person doesn't have to move out of a third world country and live like a North American to be a righteous soul. A person doesn't have to leave an inner city to be a faithful child of God. And so here it's interesting, this passage that he lays out here that says, I tell you about the, the, the one in, in poverty. The Lord says, I'll exalt that righteous individual. 
But then look at verse 10. But the rich man, or the rich, in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field, he'll pass away. I don't understand that. Why did he change the topic? Oh, he didn't change the topic. But it sounds like he changed the topic. We went from saying, let's talk about a rich man, and all of a sudden the rich man is going to be made humble, and then all of a sudden we started talking about it's like, it's like what? It's like a flower of the field. If you want to measure the lifespan of a redwood, you might do that in centuries. You want to measure the lifespan of a human being. You might do that in decades. You want to measure the life of a flower, especially in this text, a flower of the grass. You're going to measure that one in days. And he says, let me talk to you about riches just a moment. And then it's as if he changes the subject, which he's not really changing the subject, but it's as if he does. And he says, let me use this flowers example. Okay. And so the next verse, he says, let's talk about the life cycle of that flower. You come out one morning and there's still a little bit, I'm adding some of this. There's a little bit of dew because we've all seen it. There's a little bit of dew on the flower in the field and, and the east, the sun is rising in the east and it just glistens and you walk by and what do you do? If you appreciate beauty, you say, isn't that beautiful? Look at that beautiful flower. You, you were on your way, but you stopped. It got your attention. Isn't that a beautiful flower? And then the sun comes on up, and there he said, the heat of the day, it withers away. And all of a sudden you say, that was where that beautiful flower was this morning. It's, it's gone. Now, Notice the end of that verse there. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Have you ever noticed that the rich man's possessions will make most people stop in a similar way that a beautiful flower will make people stop? How many times have you walked away from an elaborate home and you've said, you just wouldn't believe that home. We just kept walking in. Let me tell you, they even have heated toilets. You just wouldn't believe it. You should have seen the marble from, I don't know what country, pick a country, Italy. I don't know where marble comes from. And, and you should have seen the chandelier. And you should have seen this. Now, you can imagine that, can't you? You can imagine because that's someone walking through the house and stopping and saying, wow. And you walk a little further and you say, wow. It's like walking through a field in a beautiful sunrise and saying, look at that flower. Wow. Let's pass through his garage. Oh, look at her car. Look at his car. Look at the extra car. Wow. His possessions, her possessions, they'll make you stop. And they'll make you take notice. And it's easy for the wealthy person to say, you know what exalts me? People slow down and they stare at my possessions. That's what exalts me. And the Lord said, no. If it's your riches you're counting on, you're going to be humiliated because they're going to fade just like the flower fades. And here's the point. The point is, death is a great equalizer. It's the whole point of those three verses. 
Now, if you were here this morning, you see how that dovetails right in to tonight's lesson. And that's another reason I wanted to share these three verses with you. What shall a man gain if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? And you say, well, well but if you've got the whole world, if you've got all these riches, it, it can't be bad. If you lose your soul, it's bad. Why? Because the day is coming when the great equalizer levels it all out. Does it make sense? Here is, here is a man lying here deceased. Here is another man lying here deceased. It doesn't matter which one was a millionaire and which one wasn't. It doesn't matter which one had billions and which one didn't. Listen, at this point, the only thing that matters, did the Lord exalt you? If the Lord didn't exalt you, You've lost it all. You've lost it all. We've got mail. And a little part of this mail that God gives us in the book of James is to say, don't be so distracted by all the things and all of the possessions. Now, if God has given to you, be a good steward. Be wise. Be a conduit. Let it pass through you so you can glorify God by the way you use them. And in that, you can do great good for the kingdom, but it's not the possessions that make you important. It's your relationship with God that He exalts. And so tonight, you may have grown up with a parent that really pressured you to get a certain degree so you can make a certain amount of money. You may have married a spouse that's really pressured you to get in a certain size house or drive a certain kind of car. I want to give you some good news tonight. You're serving a God that money doesn't impress. You're serving a God that can give you all He wants to give you and the reason He doesn't give some of us more is because it would turn our heart away from Him. You're serving a God that it's not the money that impresses Him. It's the things that money can't buy that impresses him. Your heart, your devotion, your loyalty, your relationship with him. And tonight, somebody in this room is the poorest and someone is the richest financially. And glory be to God that we're all invited to become a part of God's family. That's the good news. Tonight, if we can help you in any way, if you're ready to be immersed into Christ, if you're ready to be restored, if we